If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today, we'll look at verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Beginning with our text today and going to the end of chapter 5, Jesus speaks about six areas of morality, and he does so by using contrast. And uh, between a certain opinion and what he has to say. This section from here to the end of the chapter must be seen in light of what we spent the last two Sundays looking at, verses 17 to 20, because otherwise it might appear that Jesus is presenting a new system of morality or that Jesus is giving a new interpretation of the law and therefore establishing his own law, if you wish, and abolishing the old law, or that he's simply getting rid of the law altogether. That is, he sees the Old Testament as insufficient and superficial, and now he presents something that is deeper and fuller. This is simply not the case. As I said, we've spent the last two Sundays to find the relationship of Jesus to the Old Testament, the relationship of the teachings of Jesus, the good news, the gospel, to the law and the prophets. And what did we find? That the purpose of Jesus coming and teaching was not to annul the law, but to, in fact, confirm or affirm it. He affirmed it as scripture. It is truth. He spoke of its validity in all parts. He said not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. He spoke of its durability until heaven and earth disappear. And he spoke of its continuing authority, in which he said that anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches someone else to break it will be least in the kingdom. So when we come to our passage today and for the next few weeks, we will see that Jesus is not contrasting his teaching with that of the Old Testament because he, in fact, sees a unity. He hasn't come to annul it, but to confirm it. So we can safely conclude that what Jesus is about to tell us is in line with what we have seen in the Old Testament. I think perhaps a better way to put it is that the teachings of the Old Testament will line up with what Jesus is about to say because the Old Testament points to Jesus and his teaching. So this raises a question, and that is Jesus is going to give a series of contrasts to what is he contrasting his teaching. In verses 21 and 33, you will find the formula, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. In verse 31, it has been said... um, In verses 27, 38, and 43, you have heard that it was said. What they have in common is it was said. And then Jesus, by contrast, says, but I say. The six statements that Jesus gives have their roots in the Old Testament. So again, this gets a little scary because it would seem that Jesus is, in fact, contradicting 
what the Old Testament has to say, that he's setting it aside. No. The expression it was said is not something that Jesus uses in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, generally speaking, he says, it was written. But here when he says it was said, he isn't speaking of the Old Testament, but the way that it's been taught, the way that it's been interpreted, the way that people heard it when they went to synagogue every Sabbath. The contrast is between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings that people have heard. And where did they hear this teaching? Who taught the people? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They had taught the people one thing, and Jesus is saying, I'm here to tell you something quite different. Does this mean, that, does this mean it's a new teaching? It's a new doctrine? It's a new interpretation? No. It is, in fact, affirming and confirming the original intent. This is what God meant when he gave the law and when the prophet spoke. This is, in fact, the original direction. It's all about Jesus, and so as Jesus speaks, there is no contradiction. He's not contrasting, well, you know, the Old Testament says this, but I'm telling you this. It's like, this is what the Old Testament says, and these people are telling you something different. Let me tell you, in fact, what it says. Those listening to Jesus had been taught a very narrow understanding of the law. It dealt purely with the external, with people's behavior. And it used a rationality in contrast to love. Love was not the motivating factor. You should keep the law because you love God and you love your neighbor. It was, well, there's these reasons, and they had this rather complicated system of false reasoning. And the end result is people thought, look at us, we're keeping the law. We're good, righteous people because we're keeping the law of God. Jesus now comes and he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And in doing so, he says, this is what God meant. This is what God said years ago when he gave the law. And this is what God expects of his people. So what we find in verses 21 to 48 is not some type of exercise and this is what they say, this is what I say. But in fact, it is a call to live in a particular way. If we are the people of God, this is how we're supposed to live. We don't live this way in order to become the people of God. We don't do this in order to be saved. It is because we are the people of God that we are to live this way. As Jesus speaks, I think the difference between himself and his audience, if you wish, would almost be the difference between looking through a peephole into a room, you get a very constricted view of what's going on, and actually being in the room itself. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees had taught the people a very narrow perspective, and Jesus speaks as someone who has opened the door, is in the room, and is showing them all around. This, in fact, is what God intends. His teaching is not an expansion of the law. It is an expanding of a very narrow-minded understanding of the law. Now, as sort of a foundation to what we're going to look at in the next few weeks, there are at least three aspects to a proper understanding of the law. These are foundational. These are necessary. The first is the holiness of God. It's reflected in his majesty and his glory. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses tells the Israelites, and this is a new generation because there's the time of 40 years in the wilderness has almost come to an end, and he reminds them, some of them were just children, some of them hadn't been born, when they were at Mount Sinai. What happened? 
When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord, your God has, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. In other words, this is a holy, righteous, majestic, glorious God who's speaking to us out of the fire, and we can't take it. This is too much for us. So Moses, you go. It's almost like a sacrificial lamb. You go, and you listen to the voice of God. You hear what he has to say, and then you come back and tell us, and we will do whatever it is that God wants us to do. So Moses went up, and if you know the story, when he came back down, his face was radiant. He had been in the presence of God. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. One of the things we find in the Old Testament, and I, we, we see it in the New Testament as well, is that when people are confronted with the presence of God, they are scared to death. They are fearful. They don't say, hey, let's, let's talk. You know, let's just you know, shoot the breeze for a while. They are afraid because they have seen God. Jacob, after wrestling with the Lord all night, named the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. When Isaiah had his vision of the Lord in the temple, he said, woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God is holy. He's also omnipresent, and he's omniscient. All acts are committed in his presence. Everything we do, God is there with us. And everything about us, God knows. All acts are in his presence, and all thoughts are known to him. So knowing this, when we come to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. When we read the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, what are we to think? Are we to imagine that God will allow us, without any blame attached, to get as close as possible to breaking the commandment without actually breaking it? That is to say that God doesn't really care if I think all sorts of murderous thoughts, wishing the other person dead or some harm to come on that person. That God doesn't care if I say all sorts of terrible things against that person, either to that person or, in fact, about that person to other people. And that God doesn't really care if I do all sorts of horrible things to that person just as long as I don't kill them. I can beat them within an inch of their life, just don't kill them. Just as long as the person doesn't die. Or what we'll see next week, the Lord willing, that God doesn't care if I think thoughts regarding another person in a sexual context, or if I engage in sexual activity, but I don't actually have sexual intercourse, I don't actually commit adultery, that God is okay with that. 
from what we know about what Jesus taught, this is not the case. But let's set that aside for a moment. In light of the holiness of God and the majesty and the glory of God, we should know this already. Imagine that every thought you think and every word you say against someone, every act against someone is done in the presence of God. And God is a holy God. By the way, there's something else here. This tells us a lot about Jesus, his righteousness, his holiness, and his perfection. Did Jesus sort of skirt along the edge of the law and just barely keeping, you know, keeping the bare minimum of God's requirements? Or did he, in fact, obey God's commandments? He was God in the flesh, holy and without sin. As John put it, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's one who is majestic and glorious and holy. Did he entertain lustful thoughts? No. Did he harbor any thoughts of revenge? No. So when we come to these six areas of morality, we should first of all think of God's holiness. Secondly, we should think of the place of the heart, which involves intent and motive. Again, the character of God must come into play here. Is God limited that he can only see our acts? He doesn't actually know what we're thinking in our hearts. He doesn't know our motives. We can't know each other's hearts, each other's motives. I think sometimes we don't even know our own hearts, our own motives. Um, but God knows our hearts. He knows what we're thinking and why we do what we do. The law, as it was given, generally speaking, dealt with observable behavior because we cannot judge another person based on their thoughts unless they tell us, this is what I'm thinking. We can't read people's minds, okay? So the law dealt with the externals. But there is an understanding that external acts come from internal thoughts, that we don't usually act without thinking. There are times when we do, but generally there's something that begins in the heart, in the mind, and then is reflected in our actions. So what we need is not new actions, but a new heart, because the heart is where things start. If the heart is the problem, then yeah, we need a new heart. This is the root of the problem. The third thing as foundation to looking to these six areas of morality is that the law of God shows God's concern for people. God's law protects people. It protects persons in two aspects. First, the person sinned against, and then secondly, the person who sins. First of all, the person sinned against. In the first two contrasts, we find someone who has sinned against uh, a person who is called raka, uh, that is an insult to their intelligence, or fool, shows contempt for their character. And Jesus says that calling someone this name, in fact, is not acceptable. To be, if you do so, you will be subject to judgment. It is a breaking of the sixth commandment. You're like, what, really? Calling people names is like committing murder? What we see from Jesus here is a real caring for the person who has been wrong. We may think that words don't hurt, that they don't do damage, but in fact, they may. And God is concerned for the person who is being insulted, who is being assaulted, if you wish, by words. And this comes under the sixth commandment. Jesus sees such actions as deserving of the fire of hell. 
And what we'll see next week, the Lord willing, the person sinned against is a woman. She is sinned against in that she's not seen as a person. She's seen merely as an object, the object of one's desires, lust, or fantasies, an object to gratify one's lust. A thing without history or without context. She may be married. She may be single. She may have children. She may not. But she's seen as basically an object and not having any life. God says no. And Jesus says no. To lust after a person is a violation of that person. More than that, it is a violation of God's purpose in creating that person. Someone made in the image of God, that person is not an object. That is an image bearer. And then there's a concern for those who sin. Not only does one sinned against, but the one who sins. Sin not only hurts others, that is, if I kill someone, I've not only hurt that person, I've also done damage to myself. It is the nature of sin that it brings death, and it harms us in many ways. But specifically, I think what Jesus points out here is that there's a lack of connection between what's in our heart and, and our actions. That oftentimes what we are thinking is not the same as what we're doing. And as such, we're just all over the place. We're not integrated at all because we're like two people. We're schizophrenic, thinking one thing but doing another. At times, this is called hypocrisy, the wearing of a mask. But oftentimes, I think it is, if it's not hypocrisy, it is a lack of integration. That is to say, we don't act out what we're thinking. Now, there are times when we would all say, thank the Lord for that. Because if we acted on what we thought, imagine the chaos that would break out in the world. If people actually did what they desired, well, we're beginning to see that, aren't we? As society begins to disintegrate, we're beginning to see that there's no, there's no editing that goes on between what people think and what they do. They simply act on what they want to do. So what is the answer? We cannot act on our own if our desires are wrong. You know, we can't just kill somebody because we want to. We can't do that without breaking the law. So should we just continue to think evil thoughts but not do bad things against them? This is not acceptable. The answer is we need a new heart. As we read in Ezekiel, I will give them an undivided heart, that is an integrated heart, and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them the, their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. So let's look at the first area of morality here. The first contrast begins in verse number 21. You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who commits mur or who murders will be subject to judgment. So Jesus begins with the sixth commandment, which in reality is the first commandment that has the death penalty with it. We find this not mentioned the first time with Moses, but with Noah. When Noah came out of the ark, the Lord said to him, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. 
As listed among the Ten Commandments, this commandment was severely limited by the Pharisees and teachers of the law to the act of murder or homicide itself. That is, if you did not murder someone, you were keeping the law. Jesus disagrees and gives it a much wider intent, a broader application. The Pharisees did understand if you commit murder, then you are subject to judgment. But Jesus says that there are other sins which violate the sixth commandment as well, which put you uh, under divine judgment as well. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus here speaks under the third, sixth commandment of three types of sin, three sins, which in the eyes of God are equally wrong and are worthy of judgment. Murder, obviously, but then there is anger and there are insults. And I think what Jesus begins to unpack for us is that the sixth commandment not only deals with external actions, but in fact our thoughts, our words, and the insults, and dare we say even our feelings, our emotions. Anger, some translations have without a cause. This is, this is something we need to be careful of because we are told in scripture that there is such a thing as righteous anger. We read of God being angry and God is without sin. But there is unrighteous anger, anger born of pride, of hatred, of malice, of revenge. The word that Jesus uses suggests that he's speaking of nursing a grudge. Because in Greek, there are at least two words, two main words for it. One describes a flame that comes from dry straw, just sort of bursts into flame. This isn't what Jesus speaks of. It is the second one. It is a long-lived anger. As one person put it, the anger of the man who nurses his wrath to keep it warm. You hold on to it. You keep it warm. It is the second sense of anger that Jesus speaks. And then he speaks of the manifestations of anger, and that is of insulting someone. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, anyone who says, you fool. Raka is an uh, Aramaic term which is intended as an insult to a person's intelligence or lack thereof. John Stott, um, the late John Stott, who is British, gave English parallels, nitwit, blockhead, numbskull, bonehead. I think more American equivalents are idiot, imbecile, halfwit, moron, brainless. You get the point. It is, in fact, insulting someone, calling them a name that calls into question their intelligence. Fool, on the other hand, is a Greek word that is to be understood in a Hebrew context. It shows contempt for a person's character. Someone who is rebellious, someone who is an apostate, someone who is an outcast. Because you, we need to be careful here. Jesus, in fact, calls people fools. Matthew 23, woe to you, blind guides. You say, anyone who swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Is Jesus being inconsistent? I would say that in our text, Jesus is referring to calling someone a fool in a fit of unrighteous anger or holding a grudge and referring to someone as a fool in an unrighteous way. Jesus in our text makes a connection between anger in the heart and words that come out of the mouth. Anger in the heart and insults and sometimes even murder. Anger and insults 
are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of someone who stands in our way. We want what we want, and this person is preventing us from getting what we want. The thought comes to mind, I wish that person were dead. All of these, insulting someone, questioning their intelligence, calling them an apostate, if you wish, if they in fact are not, but simply out of anger that you do this, are offensive to the mind of God and to the holiness of God, and they violate his law, specifically the sixth commandment. And they are subject to judgment. Three expressions of judgment are given here, the judgment, the council, the Sanhedrin in the NIV, and the fire of hell. I would argue that these are all the same thing. They are all expressions of divine judgment. So being angry leads to judgment. Insulting someone leads to judgment. And that judgment is divine judgment seen in the fire of hell. God is the supreme judge. By the way, when the NIV has Sanhedrin, it actually means the supreme court. And God is the supreme court. He is the final judge. And so if you do these things, then God, in fact, knows what's in your heart, even if you haven't said anything. But if you say something, God has heard it, and you will be in danger of judgment. Jesus gives two examples which are intended, I think, as applications of his explanation of the Sixth Commandment. In each, there are two individuals against whom someone has done wrong. The first is your brother, the second is your adversary. There are two types of activities mentioned, interestingly enough. One is religious, having a gift at the altar, and the other one is legal, we might say secular, sort of a non-religious issue. It points to the reality that what Jesus is talking about in the Sixth Commandment is not just only in church, in religious activity with fellow Christians. This is something that affects every area of our life. All wrongs, all angers, if you wish, are covered by the Sixth Commandment. In the first illustration, the picture is that it's fairly clear someone has gone to the temple in Jerusalem. We know that because that's the only place where there's an altar. Okay? Now, th this is fascinating because Jesus is speaking to people in Galilee. And if they're going to go to Jerusalem, that's a long way to go. You have to walk. Okay? It's going to take you several days. But a person gets there, they have their sacrifice, they have their gift, and they're about to hand it to the priest to be sacrificed, and there it occurs to him, I have wronged my brother. I have offended my brother. And Jesus says, if that happens, you set the gift aside, you go back and you be reconciled to your brother, and then you come back and offer your gift. This is pretty radical, if nothing else, because of the distance that going back and being reconciled would take days. But it's also radical because one would think that religious activities take priority over everything else. I mean, what's more important, offering my sacrifice to God or being reconciled to my brother? I, this is more important. Here I am. I'm at the temple. I'm in the presence of God. I'm going to give my sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be reconciled to my brother, but that's, that's secondary. And Jesus does not say that. He doesn't say that offering a sacrifice to God is a higher duty. Um, it isn't which is more important. It is what is the nature of true worship. And true worship involves being reconciled to one's brother and being reconciled to God. 
One person put it this way, the Lord does not want to talk with a disciple who does not want to talk with a brother. God doesn't want to have a conversation with you if you can't have a conversation with your fellow believer, your fellow, fellow disciple. If we are not reconciled to those we have seen, our brothers, we cannot be reconciled to God. So first things first, God will not accept the worship of one who is not reconciled to his brother. Fulfill your duty, be reconciled, and then come and offer your gift. That's fascinating. Jesus doesn't say, leave your gift, and be, then go be reconciled to your brother, and then everything's fine. No, then you come back and do what you're supposed to do, your duty toward God in terms of worship. Our relationship with God is primary, but our relationship with our brothers and sisters is equally important. First things first. The second illustration adds to the first. Um, It's not enough to do first things first. Do it now. Do it quickly. In this illustration, if we're not careful, we'll get entangled up or get tangled up in the details. It's a legal setting, adversary, court, judge, officer, prison, all these different things. And we'll begin, I think, to look at it too closely and we'll sort of miss the point of what is being said. The point of this illustration is when you do not take care of your problems immediately, specifically that of being reconciled to your brother, problems will multiply. Starts out with one person who then tells another his grievances and the next thing you know, you're in jail. Um, Yeah, take care of things. First things first, and do it now. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't speak only of the negative or only in the negative. Do not be angry, don't hold a grudge, don't insult. But he speaks in, in terms of positive actions. Go and be reconciled with your brother. Settle matters quickly. And everything, all of this comes under the sixth commandment. This is what God requires of his people. This is the good news of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus requires of his disciples. Let me read you something. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know where this comes from? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is it one of the gospels? It's from Leviticus chapter 19. This is from the law that God gave to Moses. This is what we find in the law. If we're not careful, we'll say, oh, no, no, just don't kill people. And then you're, you're, you're good with the sixth commandment. We've missed the point. And Jesus comes, in a sense, to open the door and bring us into this room to say, here, this is what God's law is about. You're not to have a grudge. You're not to insult people. Obviously, you're not supposed to kill them. But these other things are there too. And if you come to worship God and there's problems with other, you need to reconcile. And you need to do it immediately because problems will multiply. Living in Los Angeles, the large population center, I think produces a lot of stress and anger. I think in the hustle and bustle of life, more and more people become obstacles. They become more obstacles which can produce frustration and anger. I think in more than that, they become objects. And not, not merely sexual objects, as we'll see next Sunday in the prohibition against adultery. They simply become numbers. They're just things. And they're in our way because we're trying to get to another place rather quickly. With so many people around, there's a tendency to devalue them. 
to categorize them, either by gender, uh, by ethnicity, by what they're wearing, by what car they're driving. Um, so I tell my students at the university, oftentimes they see more people in one week than their ancestors did in a lifetime. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with just being surrounded by so many people? Well, if we're not careful in the process, each life seems less valuable and less unique. It's just one more person in the way. And if we're not careful, we become angry and we devalue them as people. And in doing so, we violate God's standards. We violate his law and his holiness. In a confession from 1560, the Scots Confession, it said that to keep the Sixth Commandment means, quote, to save the lives of the innocent, to repress tyranny, to defend the oppressed. And to not keep this commandment was the same as to murder or to consent thereto, to bear hatred or to let innocent blood be shed if we can prevent it. You've heard it said, you shall not kill, you shall not murder. Jesus says, listen, it involves treating people as people. In the view of the holiness of God, we're not to be angry without cause. We're not to bear a grudge and we're not to insult people. So how do we measure up? In light of what Jesus has said, how do we measure up? I have to ask myself, how do I measure up? And what I find is that it forces me to return to the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because on my own, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to do very well here. I find myself being angry. I find myself saying things I should not say, devaluing people. It is only by the grace of God when we recognize our poverty and we look to him and say, as I leave the house today, as I get in the car today, may I be gracious as you have been gracious to me. May I be merciful to people as you've been merciful to me. And may I see them as those who are made in your image. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, I think, would be a lot happier if the Sixth Commandment was kept as you shall not commit murder. But now that Jesus tells us what we see in the Old Testament as well, that we are not to be angry, we're not to bear grudge, we're not to insult people, their intelligence or their status before you. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And frankly, we cannot do this. We are not capable. We are poverty stricken. We are poor in spirit. And we look to you, O oh Father, for grace, for mercy, for the strength, and the ability to love our neighbors ourselves, to not bear grudges, to not insult, to not wish others dead, to not devalue them and see them merely as numbers. We are surrounded by people, but these are image bearers. 
They're made in your image. And if we are light, then we are to be light in this world. Not to withdraw, but to be exactly where you've put each one of us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. May we look to you moment by moment for grace, for strength, to be obedient to your commands. We thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. Pray for Tom and for Ben as they travel that you would give them safety. For those that are sick, for Dave, that you would raise them up. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. For many, tomorrow's a holiday, a day off from work. May it be a time of rest. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.